So good to see everybody today. Super excited about our study through the uh, book of Hebrews. And so, um, hey, I just happened to uh, be out in the lobby today as you guys were all coming in. And I, I noticed lots of new faces this morning, the first-time visitors. And so we want to welcome you if you're a first-time visitor. Uh, a couple things I want to tell you about us just off the bat. Um, we, we, uh, I use a New King James Version Bible, and you will need your Bible in this church. So we just study the Bible. We like to study the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, every chapter, every verse. Today I'm in Hebrews chapter 12. You can count on next week. I'll be in Hebrews chapter 13. And if there was a Hebrews chapter 14, I'd be in Hebrews 14 the next week. But there's not, so we're going to pick another book after we finish Hebrews, and we're just going to march through the, uh, through the Bible. There's some purple cards um, either in the seat back in front of you or at the table back. And this is just a way that we could get connected with you. There's a box on there that says, I would appreciate a, a pastoral call. So that just means, hey, I'm new to the church, and uh, you know, I'll give you a call during the week sometime and invite you out to coffee or just call you and say, hey, welcome to church. And you may have some questions about us or our denomination or what we believe or anything like that. We, you can um, fill that out. We have a web page and a Facebook page so, and an app, a uh, phone app where my teachings are on the phone app. Uh, I would encourage you, if you're a Facebook person, to follow us or like our page on Facebook because that's probably our best way that we communicate information about events and stuff that's going on at churches through um, our Facebook page. And so, again, and then you could catch the teachings online if you want to catch some of the past teachings and um, that, that we do. They're all online on the uh, audio version of that. But anyways, again, uh, welcome. And then for um, all you old people that have been here for a long time, open your Bibles. No, I'm just kidding. Hey, we have some loaner Bibles, or you could do it on your phone, your app. Again, if you're looking for to follow along with me word for word, I'm using a New King James Version. Does anybody know why I use a New King James Version? <laughs> because it's the best, only uh, guaranteed, solidified God version of the Bible? Absolutely not. There's lots of great versions of the Bible. We have 6,000 different manuscripts of the original Greek and Hebrew uh, I just got saved in an in NKJV, and I've stuck with it, but there's lots of great translations of the Bible. Um, that's just the one we happen to use. So if you need to borrow a Bible, Mike will be happy to bring you one. If you don't own a Bible, please keep that. That is our gift to you. Um, we actually got some decent uh, 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 gift Bibles right now. Sometimes we get them cheap, like, but these ones are pretty good. So if you don't own a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, really, don't be shy. Raise your hand. Mike will bring you a Bible. And, and if you just need to borrow a Bible for today, you can put it back on the table when you're out. We're in Hebrews chapter 12. We, we only covered two verses of chapter 12 last week in um, verses 1 and 2. Now, as you guys know, um, I believe strongly that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Who the human author is, it really doesn't matter. We know that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But one of the things about the Apostle Paul is that um, you have to understand something that in, in, in really all of human history, there's, there's a few characters that God just needed and used and, and nobody more so than this, this character of the, uh, of, named the Apostle Paul who wrote 14 books in the New Testament. God used him to write over half of the New Testament. Really the run and the race and the, the completion of being a Christ follower, nobody did it better in, in really all of human history than this guy named Paul. And because of this gift of the Holy Spirit, his ability to articulate and write and communicate, um, really bar none. And I really believe that God gave the Apostle Paul some supernatural abilities um, because he had such a great responsibility in um, writing and, and, and communicating the word of God to you and I, hearing from the Holy Spirit. And, 
Um, the Bible says that the, 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 the holy men wrote as the whole, as Holy men wrote as the Holy Spirit instructed and guided them. It's like a sail, and that wind in the sail guided them where they went. All the words that we have in the Word of God are, are by um, and from the mouth of God. But one thing the Apostle Paul does really good, you get a guy that's this intellectual, and he's this smart. You know, How many of you guys, you know any of those like type A personalities, really smart guys, and their heads kind of pulse when they talk to you? And Nobody? One of my professors in college was that way, and he just was the type of guy. And we had this contest going in Bible college for two years, and if you could get um, uh, this professor to answer your question with a one-word answer, you would win the jackpot. And, and so if you could get him to say yes or no, then you'd win. So you would, you would come up to him, and you would say, pa- Pastor Bob, Pastor Bob, are my shoes tied? And he'd say, well, you know, the thread that makes the count in your shoes and the strings and the way that they, you know, and you just, he, he couldn't just say yes or no. Like he had to explain to you the way it worked. And he was, he was so intellectual that, you know, and, and he was great with the Bible. Any question you'd ask him would just get thorough. Well, the Apostle Paul had this, this ability to, I mean, he wrote so much doctrine and so much important information. As we studied through Hebrews, we, we, we kind of did that, where our brains kind of pulsed a little bit as we went through some of the, the doctrinal things of Hebrews, Melchizedek and, and the priesthood. And, and, and the thing is that, that the Apostle Paul, if we just kind of try to, try to narrow it down a little bit, basically 13 times in the book of Hebrews, he says that Jesus is better. And we know that his audience were Hebrew Christians who were coming out of Judaism. They were according to the law of Moses, and they followed God the way they should have. And then Jesus dies on a cross and rises again in the middle of their lives. And they they go from Judaism to Christianity. And as they're coming out of the old system and into the new system, the new covenant that, that Jesus... Now, none of us can appreciate that because none of us have lived right smack dab in the middle of dispensation changes where we went from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But this group of people... They actually lived it. They were born under the law of Moses, and they died under grace and under the new covenant. And so Paul is telling this group that Jesus is better. He was better than Moses. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the temple sacrifices. He's better, and and who Jesus is, and making a real case that Jesus is way better, and following Jesus and relationship with Jesus is way better than relationship to the law. And some of that stuff got really heady and intellectual as we went through Hebrews. But the, the amazing thing about Paul, even though he's that personality and he just has so much information going on in his head, it's hard for him to give you a one-word answer, Paul can also be very practical. He can, he can just bring it right down to street level. And whenever you see this, this term, therefore, um, that's in chapter 12, verse 1 in the Bible, you, it's, it's, it's a, you think it's just kind of like a transition word, not that important. It doesn't really have any biblical meaning. But therefore, in the Bible, whenever you see that, it's an important word because it's an application word. It connects what he said before to what he wants to tell you. And usually what, what there, when, when you see the therefore, what he said before was like just a bunch of information. And, and now I love it that Paul just doesn't give us. The Bible just doesn't give us a bunch of information, and then we've got to figure out what to do with it. He actually gives us real life practical information. You ever talk to anybody that said, oh, I read the Bible and I don't understand it? Oh, I read the Bible and it's too confusing. Well, those people never read the Bible. Because it says, be kind one to another. Either you're really stupid and you can't understand what be nice means, or you actually haven't read the Bible. Because I'm pretty sure that, yeah, there, there are things in the Bible that are hard to understand. I mean, um, Paul, even in the Bible, it's funny because Peter is talking one time and he's talking to a group and he's telling them that Paul is hard to understand. 
He's like, yeah, that Paul guy, he's pretty heady and he can be hard to understand. Now, I get it. There, there are things, but there are just as many things as there are hard to understand. The Bible is just full of practical, everyday living, and that's where we find ourselves today. So those of you that have been here for like the last 10 weeks and have endured through Hebrews 10 chapters, now we get to the real, everyday, practical, how do we apply it to our lives. And, and the first part is, Paul says, do you guys write in your Bibles? How many of you guys write in your Bibles? Okay, a lot of you, we want you to. It's a good practice. So if you have your pen or your, your, your thing out, listen, in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 1, there's a therefore. Underline it. And then in verse number 12, there's a therefore. And then in verse number 28, there's a therefore. Now, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit teaches through the Word of God is in repetition. And so whenever you see something repeated in a chapter, in a section, it's, it's meant to, to, to draw your attention to it. Now, I believe every one of these therefores is really practical. It, 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 it's kind of, to me, you, you can read yourself, but I think every one of them says, in essence, the same thing um, in a little different vein. The first one says, therefore, since you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, then, then, then lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares you. And, and basically what it's saying is to reconcile yourself to God. Get right with God. What is it in your life that's keeping you from reconciling and having relationship and being intimate with God? Is there anything in your life that's creating separation between you and God? Is, is there things that are just black and white sin that you know in your life are destructive? Those are sins. And he says, lay aside those sins. And then he adds a second category of weights. And these are things that are not necessarily just black and white, seven deadly sins. They're, they're, they're things in our life and our lifestyle that just prevent us from, from walking closely with the Lord. There are things that, that, that just don't profit or, or they don't help us in our relationship and in our walk with the Lord. And Paul says, lay those things aside and focus on doing the things and getting right with God. And then as you look at the verse 12, we're just going to look at these three therefores, and then we'll get back to going through the verses. It says, strengthen, therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. And so, again, the, the, the idea is Paul says that when we pray, we should raise holy hands to the Lord. And, and, and the knees is an idea, again, of praying, that you get on your knees and you raise your hands to pray. And so Paul says, is encouraging us in our walk with the Lord, that if you're droopy and you're, you're, you're depressed and you're, you're just not walking with the Lord because of your own you know, self-pity, just to raise your hands, to lift your head, to, to, to pray again, to, to strengthen your feeble knees. And he gives the illustration that if we, we don't do these things and reconcile to God and just get right with God and begin to serve the Lord, that, that these conditions can, can cripple us. They can turn into something. So, so to get over them and to, to raise your hands and lift your eyes and lift your head. And then in verse 28, again, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So, you know, again, in, in, in some respect, all three of the therefores of chapter 12 are encouraging us in this direction of reconciling ourselves to God. So I'm going to encourage you this morning that you, you should do exactly that. Last week when you left, I gave you a challenge, and, and hopefully some of you guys took it seriously. I said, identify in your life, because Paul says for us to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. So as you left last week, I said, identify in your life a weight. Something in your life, maybe that's not just sinful, but, but it's something that's distracting you in your relationship and, and your focus of following the Lord. And get rid of that in your life. And lay that aside. And then Paul uses such a clear, clear example 
um, that we can all relate to. You just you can't argue with it. You can't deny it. Because the, the Christian life, listen, is a marathon. It's not a sprint. If, you, if Jesus tarries, then, then we, we'll walk with the Lord until the day we die, and it's a long, long process. And we have to be in it for the long haul. You can't, you can't run a 28-mile, see what I know, 26.2-mile marathon and, and come out of the gates running as fast as you can and sprinting. You'll never last. You pace yourself. You set the pace. You understand it's a different type of race. If you're running a 100-meter dash, you run that completely differently. The Christian life is a marathon, and, and it's, it's longevity. And Paul says, who of you who runs a marathon? And first of all, he says, run in such a way that you'll win. How is your Christian living? How is your Christian life? Are you, are you just doing enough? We talked about last week to get by and not go to hell. Are, are you just doing enough for what we like to call fire insurance? I don't really want all that Christian stuff. I just don't want to go to hell. I just want fire insurance. What do I need to do to get that? Or, or are you running your race in such a way that you're going to win? Now, now don't think, Paul uses the analogy in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, about it being a competition and a race. But I want to be clear that in the competition, you're not racing against other Christians. Okay, don't look at that, that, don't understand it that way. It has nothing to do with the people that are next to you. You're not running or competing against other Christians to beat them. It, it's a different kind of race. It's a race of life that, it's like playing golf. You compete against the course. You compete against yourself. You compete against the devils and the wiles and the schemes. And, and, and in your relationship with God, you're competing to run your race well. But how many of you guys, if you, if you wanted to run in such a way to win, would, would come to the starting blocks and you would have weights on your ankles and, and a weight jacket on your back and wearing tight leather jeans to run a marathon? Leather jeans? There's no such thing. Huh? Leather, leather pants? Right? Can you see a runner coming out in... You know, what do they wear? They wear them little dolphin shorts with the obnoxious slots up the side, right? So that you Marines know what I'm talking about, right? So that they can be free to run and, and, and nothing inhibits their, their ability to compete in this marathon. And God says, and Paul says here through, through um, Hebrews the same thing, that we should run our race in such a way. Prepare our hearts, prepare our lives, get rid of things in your life that distract. And then he says um, in verse number three where we pick up today, He says, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Who's it talking about? Chapter 3. Jesus. So really, the the capital H there in him is always an indication, right? It's the first kind of idea that we're talking about deity because it's capitalized. For consider Jesus who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Listen, I want to apologize to everybody right now. But the Bible takes away all your excuses. You're not going to have any excuses left. Okay? There are no excuses in Jesus. You're not, you know, and I say this too all the time. This is a rabbit trail now. But, you know, when you stand before Jesus, there'll be no excuse. None that will stand. Oh, well, my pastor, you know, whatever. My church was this, and these people were that, and they lied to me, and they did this, and every Christian I ever knew was a rotten ninny poop, and I just, I don't want nothing to do with them. Well, that has nothing to do with Jesus. But here Paul says um, in verse 3, Consider Jesus who endured such hostility from sinners. And don't become weary in your race. Really, when's when's the last time that somebody put a bag on your head and punched you in the face? When's the last time that somebody ripped your beard from your face and spit loogies on your eyes? Stripped you naked in front of big crowds and whipped you with the cat of nine tails 39 times? 
And, 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 the, and the powerful thing is, is that Jesus, it says he endured um, this hostility from sinners and, and he was gracious through the process because he loved those that were beating him. And he understood that he was dying for those that were beating him. Many of those who, who were there the day Jesus died, the Bible tells us, became Christians when they saw and they, they witnessed the event for themselves. Can you imagine being the guy in human history that had the cat of nine tails and whipped Jesus upon his back? You know, the Bible says that, that all things that, that are in the world, that Jesus holds them together, literally, physically. The Bible says that everything is made, we know, the chair you're sitting in, your body, water, everything in this room is made up of atoms. And at the core of an atom are two positively charged neutrons, and, and they, they want to repel one another. And, and right, the, the, when, we, when man figured out how to split the atom, what was the result? Hiroshima, Nagasaki is the power because the, the power is already in the, in the core of the cell. We just had to release it. Well, science doesn't understand what holds it together. They, they call it invisible glue, atomic glue. But the Bible tells us in Colossians, we know exactly what holds every atom in the universe together. It says that Jesus holds all things together. And that's why science doesn't understand and it can't explain why everything doesn't break apart and fall apart. Because Jesus is holding them together. Peter tells us that when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, he said that the old earth and the old heaven will pass away with a fervent heat. They're going to burn up. You know what's going to happen on that day? Jesus is going to let go. And the things that are of the world and of heavens previously are going to, the, the, the natural response of that, that, that atom is going to take place and things are going to burn with a fire. That also means that the whip that, that the soldier held in his hand to whip Jesus with, Jesus was holding together. The very nails, the nine inch nails that they put in Jesus' hands and in his feet, Jesus was holding them together. I don't know about you or me, but I would have let go. But Jesus held on, and, and the Bible says to consider Jesus. Now, I wasn't kidding when I said you won't have no excuse, right? So, so the things that, you know, we, we whine about and we complain about, he says, consider, consider the things that Jesus went through the next time you want to whine or complain about, you know, the temperature's too hot in your church or too cold or the chair's uncomfortable or the music was too loud or too quiet or they didn't play your favorite song or... They didn't greet you when you came in the door, and, out, and that's why you don't love God or go to church, or, you know, the coffee was the wrong flavor, and Pat's the reason why you're going to go to hell. <laughs> These lame excuses. He says, um, so again, just consider Jesus. It leaves us without excuse. You know, in this kind of same vein, let me rabbit trail again really quickly. Um, you know, we use this in marriage counseling, because it says that, that, that Jesus, you know, um, sometimes husbands will say, oh, well, you know, my wife, she, she, she tells me things I don't deserve and I didn't do. And I'm taking, you know, blows for something I didn't deserve. And I say, well, I know a guy that took some blows for doing stuff he didn't deserve. I, I know a guy that put a bag on his head and punched him for your sins. And, and, and that Jesus said to love your wife as Christ loved the church. So sometimes, as, and he said to lay himself down for her. So, yeah, you can't whine. You can't complain that, you know, sometimes you're, you're, you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church means that you take some blows you don't deserve with grace. And you respond in kindness. And, and you, you, don't, you don't get to play poor me-itis because, you know, Jesus did it as an example. Jesus went humbly to the cross being spit on and beaten by, you know, people that he loved. And because for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Amen? 
And then it says in verse 4, it says, you have not yet resisted to and striving against sin. So the Hebrew Christians he's talking to in his day in verse 4, they, they hadn't really entered this period of, of history where um, 6 million Christians um, in the next 100 years from when Paul wrote this would be martyred for their faith. From, from the, the, the Neros in Rome, there was a succession of 13 more of them before Rome collapsed. Rome was the, the world power at the time of Jesus. And 13 more Neros, and then Rome collapses sometime around 330 B.C. And in that time, over 6 million Christians were murdered for their faith. But this, this is prior to the, the Holocaust or the, the bloodshed among the, the first and second century and Christians. And so for these guys, he said, I'm pretty sure you haven't resisted unto bloodshed. And again, just taking away excuses about kind of reasons why we, you know, we complain or we whine. Or, and, and for you and I, you know, we don't see that kind of persecution. It exists. As many Christians as died in the first century, more Christians have died in the last century than all of human history combined. With, with, with the genocides that have taken place in the Sudan and Syria and around the world in Muslim countries, that, that, that Christians to this day are being martyred for their faith at a rapid rate, more, more so than any others. And so our brothers and sisters in Christ, those that we'll spend eternity with, they are resisting to bloodshed in this moment. And, but, you know, for you and I, again, it kind of leaves us without excuse. You know, like, what do you got to complain about? You know, when's the last time you had to have your hand cut off or... You know, had to to be, you know, ISIS was videotaped it. And they told Christians, renounce your faith or we'll cut your head off. And they put them in orange jumpsuits and stood behind them and literally cut their heads off because they wouldn't resist their faith. They, I'm not going to get into it. terrible stuff they did to the kids and on and on. But we're, we're not seeing that. And Paul says for these guys, they have it in verse 5, says, Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Hey, so if you're a young person here today, so let's say like 7th grade through like 20 years old. You're a young person in here today, anybody fit in that category? Listen to me, I'm talking to you guys right now. As one of them leaves, he's like, I ain't listening to that. That was my own son. He picked the wrong time to get up and walk out. I'm going to wait for him to come back. No, I'm just kidding. Um, listen, listen. You as you will get caught. Are you a Christian? Are you in that age group? When you do something wrong, you're going to get caught. And then you're going to say, oh, how come all my other friends, they always get away with it. I get caught every time. Because God loves you. That's why. Because you're a child of God. And as a child of God, the Bible says God is going to chasten you. And, and listen, the Bible says for us as fathers, if you don't discipline your children, you, you hate them. And I'm pretty sure all of us, none of us would identify the way we feel of our, about our children in hate. And God says if you don't discipline your children, you hate them. And God says here that he chastens those whom he loves. And that's why we get caught as Christians. That's why we don't get away with things. That's why not only young people, adults as well. But listen, and the devil takes this thing and he lies to us. He says, oh, the, you know, God doesn't love you. That's why you're getting caught. That's why you're getting, you know, disciplined and rebuked and chastened. But it's actually the opposite. It's because God loves you, he doesn't let you get away with those things. You know, you get called to the school because your son is um, throwing rocks and the principal calls you to come to the school. And, and he says, yeah, there was about four boys that were um, throwing rocks and they're all in trouble and they're up there in the front office. 
and you walk into the front office where the four boys are sitting, who, who are you concerned with? Your son. Your child. Because that's the one you're responsible for. That's the one you love. And, and so God is responsible for his children, and he's going to deal with us. He's going to do it in love. You know, you know, the Bible says that, that the handiwork and the firmament um, sh- says, shows the handiwork of God. It says that God has created in every one of you, the, the, in your very core, that God exists. There's really, honestly, there's no such thing as an atheist. Because God has created in all of human and all of mankind the, the knowledge that there is a God. And that's why in Romans chapter 1 it says, in order to deny God, that the unrighteous have to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You have to suppress the truth within you because it's there. And to lie to yourself enough, lie to yourself enough, lie to yourself enough, you can become a professing atheist. But, but really in the core, there, there are no, nobody that doesn't believe because God just created it in your DNA. And he says, none of you can go and, and, and see the world. You can't see a mountain snow-capped with waterfalls coming down and green and the clouds and rainbows on the other side of it and the oceans, and the seas, and the sunsets, and the sunrises, or see a night sky with shooting stars, or the northern lights, and, and, and not know that there's a God who created it. It's created in your DNA, the Bible says. But what, what all that can't tell you is, the, is if that God knows you, if that God loves you, if that God is intimate or personal, you know he exists. But in order to know the love of God, in order to see and know that God is personal and intimate and that he loves you, you have to look to Jesus on the cross because that is the way that God said to you and I that I love you and speaks love. And also, in the second way we see the love of God demonstrated physically and literally in our lives is through this this, um, thing that we're talking about here, the discipline of God, the chastening of God. It's, it's the very essence that God chases you and corrects you and, and convicts you that, that you know that he loves you because you're a child. And so he's going sh- to tell you when you're wrong. Now, listen, the discipline of, of, of God is always um, corrective, never punish, never punitive, right? God has no interest in just punishing you because you did wrong. God has no interest in getting even by spanking you to, to prove a point. If God disciplines you, if he corrects you, if he takes you to the woodshed, Jay Vernon McGee used to say God took him to the woodshed literally and spanked him when he needed to be corrected. If God does that, it's not to punish you, it's to correct you, it's to guide you, it's to lead you. As parents, we can appreciate the need to discipline and correct our children. If your child is running out, you know, you open the restaurant door and your child begins to run towards the parking lot, what would you say as a good parent? Stop! (laughs) And then what would you do, right? Put your foot in their hind parts. Lovingly, correctly. You know, James Dobson came out with this, this book a while ago that defined it. When, when you, you know, if you take some of these things in the Bible and you go back and you listen to sermons like from the 80s and even 90s, every pastor is like, takes this opportunity to talk about, as parents, we need to be spanking our children and the, the biblical wisdom of spanking. And, um, and, and it's kind of dying a little bit. People aren't as bold to be able to, to go to that direction. But, but honestly, the Bible says that, that, that correct discipline is, is biblical. And we're not talking about abuse. And, but he says if you spare the rod, you'll spoil the child. And there is a place. Now, I don't think that there's a, a formula that every child responds the same. And I have three kids, four kids, um, that 
Well, I, I said three because I have three that require spankings, and I have another one that is a precious little um, princess, and I couldn't spank her if I wanted to, but... Um, but I just realized that, it, it, you know, you can't, they, they all respond differently. You know, one of the pastors said in spanking his children, I like this, he said that he, he never spanked stupid. He said he spanked um, disobedience. He said they were helping a friend move into a brand new house. And his son wanted to see if his head would fit through the rails. And it fit just fine. It just didn't come out. And they had to bend the rails on his friend's brand new house to get the head out. And he said, I didn't spank my son for that. I didn't spank stupid. He said, but it did bring up the conversation. If you ever stick your head in the rail again, he said, but I didn't have a rule in my house. Thou shalt not stick your head in the rail. And I like that. I like that concept. You know, and and, and also, you know, and and for everybody, we're going to relate. What Paul's going to say here again is he's going to use again this analogy of our fathers and that we could appreciate and understand um, when our fathers disciplined us. And maybe not in the moment. Nobody loved it when they're getting spanked, right? You know, how many of you guys had to endure? This is going to hurt me worse than it's going to hurt you. Shut up. Until you become a parent and then you use that line on your kids. And you understand that, that there is a, is a discipline. You know, Dobson said in the, and this is old now, but in the strong-willed child, he, he prescribed a, a proper way. And he even used timeouts because there was a book about spanking and using spanking. But, he's, but the timeout was never for the child. It was always for the parent. So you don't spank when you're mad. You don't, you don't react. You don't ever use your hand. You always use a wooden spoon or a ruler or something. And um, you, you do it. Um, so you, the child goes to their room and takes a timeout so you can cool off. And then you have a conversation, and they have to understand why they're getting spanked. Because if they, if they just, even if they're just being a knucklehead and they, they, they need a beating, but they don't understand it, it's doing nothing. It, it becomes punitive then to them. So they have to understand why, why are you getting a spanking. And then after you, you spank them, then you hug them, you make them apologize. I always like that part. I just spank them, and they've got to tell me they're sorry. They're sorry for, I'm sorry for what I did. And then you hug and you meet over it. And the psychology and the, the, the Bible behind it is that God has created in all of us a conscience. And a proper spanking that's, that's not abuse and that's applied and, and done well, it, it, it rids a child of that, that conscience. And, and so that it's, it drives it from them. And they come back, they sit around the table, everything's out in the air. They don't feel guilty anymore, you know. You know what they say, why every serial killer gets caught? Because they want to. Because after a while, there's, the conscience is, just feels like it needs to be punished. And, and part of the psychology of, of proper discipline is that it releases a child from that guilt feeling. And it's healthy. And it's right. And I do believe there are more than one ways to accomplish that. You know, the, the, the heart of it all, again, is never punitive. It's always um, restoration. And so I, for me personally, and I'm not the model parent, but for me personally, it, it's trying to achieve a heart of repentance. And I think that's what God wants from us. He's going to give us that example in Esau here in a minute, if I'd ever get back and just read it. But the, the example that's going to come up is that Esau sought repentance and he, he really wasn't broken in his spirit. I was a, a elementary school principal in, my, in the old church and we had a K-12 school. And so I was the dean of students. And so I dealt with all of the, the, the discipline for the K-12 through school um, on a daily basis. 
And if I would have two kids that would come in who did both did the exact same thing, let's say they're throwing rocks on the on the playground, and every year, you know, we get some kid coming in the in the school office with blood coming down their forehead because kids were throwing a rock, and we live in the desert in Yucca Valley. There's rocks everywhere. So, you know, if two kids are throwing rocks or a window gets broken, and one of the kids comes in and he says, I'm so sorry, Pastor Chris, I'll never do it again. I was wrong. I don't want to, you know. And then the other kid sits down and says, it's just a stupid rock. What do you care? I can throw rocks when I want. Now, it's two different hearts. My, I, and I don't want to punish. I don't, the one that's broken, like the, 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 the goal is already accomplished. He understands it's wrong. He doesn't want to do it anymore. He's repentant. Like, I really just want to let him go. I want to give him a hug and tell him, go back to class. Like, you're okay. Like, don't do it anymore. He figured it out. But the other one, now I've got to figure something out for the other one because his heart is not broken. It's not repentant. And I need to do something to try to bring him to repentance. And, and so God will do that with you and I. He, but, but his goal is to bring you to repentance. Lydia, Lydia's dad, she, he had three boys and one girl like, like I do. And, and he said that he, he never really spanked Lydia because every time it came time for her to get a spanking, she said, I'm so sorry, Daddy, I'll never do it again. And I was like, the boys were just like, you know, you'd hit them and they'd go, no, do it again, you know, and you'd have to really break them. But again, that's, that's so for us, if we're wise, we just got to be like Lydia, I'm sorry, Daddy, I'll never do it again. And if we just repent, God won't have to spank us. God won't discipline us. One of those days, I don't know if I should tell this story in church, but one of those days I was in my office as a principal at Joshua Springs Christian School, and, I'm, um, and, and right behind my chair is a door that led out, and, and the playground, the basketball court, the playground, and then the classrooms were up top, and there was this long, windy um, sidewalk that came from the classrooms down to where the offices were, and I hear this kid wailing, crying, coming down the walk. And I open my back door and I look up and this kid, Kenny Gardner, he's walking down the walk. He's got, like, like he got shot. His head's down. <laughs> he's just scream crying. Well, it's my son, Luke. And, and in tow is the Spanish teacher. He's in kindergarten and they took Spanish one hour a day. And it's his first time he's had to come to the office because he's in trouble. And he's got to come see me. And so in Spanish class, and the Spanish teacher is so mad, she said, Luke has been in my class cursing nonstop for like the last 20 minutes. And I, every time I tell him, he will not stop. I'm like, really? So I'm like, he must be hanging out with his mom. <laughs> so the first thing they do in Spanish class is they learn their Spanish names. So Luke is L-U-K-E. Well, his Spanish name is Lucas. And so it's, is it K or C, Spanish folks? L-U-C-A-S? L-U-C-A-S. So he has to write his name with an A-S instead of an E on the end of it. And he's writing his name, and he keeps forgetting to add the S at the end of his name. And so he's sitting in Spanish class, and he's saying, that stupid S, that stupid S. And the Spanish teacher, whose English is not the greatest, whose Spanish is great, but English is not the greatest, thinks he's saying something else. And she marches him down to my office for saying over and over in class, that stupid S, that stupid S. So I, and like, I can't figure it out. I'm like, he's in your class cussing and I don't know, like, I know I don't, then I say some stuff, but that's not something we go around the house saying. I don't know where he would have picked that up, but turned out it was that stupid S or something else. All right. So, hey, verse seven says, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there who the father does not chasten? 
But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Listen, you don't have to be worried if God is chasing you, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of your sins, if you feel something when you know you've broken the heart of God. Where you should be concerned and where you should be worried is if you feel nothing. If everybody else around you is getting caught or convicted and you're getting away with it, that's when you're in trouble. Because then God is not chastening you, and maybe that means you're not a son or a child or a daughter of God. And so that, that's what it says there in verse number 8. And then in verse 9 it says, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more be readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? And so he just makes a correlation that, you know, you had a father who corrected you and he believed he was doing his best. And regardless of your, you know, we've all had different human experiences. Some had great fathers. Some had abusive fathers. Some had, you know, absent fathers. I was raised by a single mom. And everybody's experience can be a little different. So how we relate to our human fathers. For, you know, I envy those of you who, who had a great father who was there your whole life and you respect and love to this day. And, and God is, is a perfect heavenly father. And maybe for others who, who had an absent dad or an abusive dad or something, you know, alcoholic dad, you, you, you project that picture onto God. And, and, and yet, God, you know, God is a perfect father. He's a heavenly father. And whether your dad was good or bad, you have a perfect father. You have a heavenly father. You know, the verse, one of the first, very first verses that God ever spoke directly to my heart after I became a Christian was out of the Psalms. And it says in the Psalms that I'm a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widows. And, and I can remember reading that verse and God just said to me, you grew up without a dad, but all those years I was there for you. I was your father. I'm a father to the fatherless. And my dad died when I was young of cancer. My mom had eight kids and never remarried. Wonderful mom who loved us and was faithful and just took her time raising us eight kids and never remarried. You know, I always tease my mom. I said, nah, nobody was going to marry some crazy lady with eight kids. <laughs> but God said to me, I'm a father of the fatherless and defender of the widows. And then it says in verse number nine, it says, furthermore, we have had human fathers. Oh, I read that verse 10. For they indeed for a few days chasten us as seemed best to them. So listen, according to that, I guess it's kind of like an encouragement. And maybe your dad failed in some ways, but he did what he thought was best. You know, and I hope for even for my own boys in that, that I've, I've not been a perfect father, but I've done what I, what I thought was best to correct you and discipline you and encourage you and to lead you in the right way. You know, I can remember this picture of, um, of, of being a parent as, you know, this little tiny hand in mine as we, as we walk together, that's my child. And my goal in life is to take this little tiny hand as it grows in mine over the years to then place that into the hands of Jesus. And, and, and that Jesus is... The, the, the Father, the Jesus is God forever, and that when we get to heaven, we, you know, practically, I'm not going to have, these aren't going to be my sons in heaven, they're going to be my brothers in Christ. We're going to be on the same plane, because we're all going to have a Father, we're all going to have a God that's going to be the same God and the same Father. And so my job is just to, to raise them to, to walk with Him, and to place their hands into His hands. And I do what, and I did what was seemed best to them, and, but but he for our profit. So the he there in verse 10 is capitalized. So your parents did what they thought was best. But he, Jesus, he disciplines you for your profit. Okay, can you receive that? Okay, look at your neighbor and say, it's for my profit. Okay, so it's for your own good. 
Okay, we, we, we highlighted that when we were studying tithing a, a couple months ago because it says the same thing in Corinthians, that it is, it is to your advantage. And here it says, it is to your profit. It is for your profit that God disciplines you. And if we'll understand that, then we can get rid of the lie that the devil's going to tell you, that somebody's going to whisper in your ear that, that it's, you're, you're enduring these things because God doesn't love you. No, it's completely the opposite. It's because of his great love for you. Now, in verse 11, no chastening seems joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So if you'll allow God to do this work in your life, it will produce fruit. And of course, it's not pleasant in the moment. Okay? As God is chastising you, as God is disciplining you, as God is taking you, so to speak, to the woodshed and dealing with some issues in your life, it's not pleasing while it's happening. So it doesn't mean it's pleasant as you go through it. But it produces fruit if you'll allow it, is what Paul says here. And then in verse 12, he says, Therefore, we read it already, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. So be encouraged. Paul's telling us to get up, to run. To, to Verse 13, make straight the path for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. You know, sometimes you see people that um, have become very... Um, non-mobile and, and, and ill in life, and, and not all, and I definitely wouldn't want to stereotype anybody or judge anybody, but I'm saying that oftentimes um, it can be that, that you just stopped moving and you just, you know, retirement is, is, is often the case. Some people that retire and, and take it easy, they, they, they die earlier or they don't stay as healthy or their health declines faster. And those that retire and stay busy and working and active, that they, they stay healthy and longer. And, and if you, you know, if you, you let something just atrophy, that will be the case. And, the, and, and here Paul says to take those hands and, and, and seek the Lord and grow and, and keep your head up and, and be encouraged to, to be a person of prayer and of things of the word and spiritual things so that those things in your life, those spiritual things, now we're talking about spiritual things, so that those spiritual things in your life don't atrophy, that they don't become lame. And, and, and they will. Something that you don't use will, will get bed sores so to speak, it will atrophy. So, so exercise your spiritual gifts. And it doesn't take long either. You know, there's a reason why the Bible says, and he's gonna, Paul's going to tell us, you know, in the next chapter, and in the last chapter, he's already repeated it in, in, in Hebrews 8, when he said, do not forsake the gathering of the brethren together, as is the custom of, the, of some. So then as we go on, verse 15, yeah? 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, the Apostle Paul says this same thing in Romans um, in another way. But again, it's very simple. Pursue peace. Is that hard to understand? Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Paul tells us in Romans, live at peace with all men as much as depends upon you. Some people you just can't live at peace with. You've been kind, you've been nice, you've taken the high road, and there's just no peace with them. Jesus said you'll have enemies, you'll have people that hate you. That's, that's not what's in context here. What's in context is the person in the mirror. And what God requires of you, listen, is not that you control what somebody else does, but God absolutely requires of you that you control your own behavior, and, and, he, and he expects you to live at peace with all men as much as depends upon you. Okay, repeat after me. Live at peace with all men as much as depends upon you. So Paul says the same thing here. 
that, that we're, to, we're to be high road people, we're to take the high road. Again, be kind. And then he says um, in verse 15, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. So now just a warning against bitterness. You know, one bitter person can cause so much trouble in the church. One bitter person can cause so much trouble in life. And here there's a term I have highlighted in my Bible in verse 15. It says many. Because one thing about bitterness is bitterness is never alone. You know the old saying that says misery loves company? Now that's not in the Bible, but it should be. Because it's, it's, it's true. Bitterness, misery loves company. And bitter people love to make other people bitter. Now here's the, here's the problem with bitterness. If you're, if you're a bitter person and you allow bitterness in your heart, you're, you're only going to hurt those that love you the most and you love the most. If you're bitter at somebody in life that's a stranger or somebody that um, doesn't live in your house, they're in their house, they're far from you, they're sleeping like a baby, your bitterness doesn't affect their life in the least. But because you're bitter and angry at that person and, and you've chosen to, to, to harbor that bitterness, when, when your spouse walks in the kitchen and you bark at them, you, you bark at your kids, you're angry, and your anger spills out to those that love you the most and you love the most, those that you do life with. And really you're mad at somebody else, but that anger's got to go somewhere. That bitterness is going to manifest itself. It's going to out itself. And so because God loves you, because he wants what's best for you, he says you have to forgive. If you're a Christ follower, you, you've, you've forfeited your right to not forgive. You just have to forgive. Pastor Gerald got to tell an amazing story this week about forgiveness, and he got to be in the middle of it. It was pretty cool. He, he, about two years ago, his house was broken into and robbed. And, and some of the things that were stolen, they stole some of his guns, and, and, uh, but some of the things that were stolen was some jewelry that Marilee had, had got from her grandma who passed away that was irreplaceable. And just the feeling of violation, you know, I've never, don't remember, I've never been as an adult been broken into, but he, he remember him telling Lydia and I, and there was a couple of times where we're like, he's acting so weird about this stuff, but he's like, you know, it just, you don't know what it feels like, you know, it just changes, you're so violated, and so, you know, it affected him, and the stuff that was stolen, and on Wednesday night, last Wednesday night in church, they had an afterglow, and the band stayed after Wednesday night and began to play. And, and you know, a bunch of folks just just came, and they just sang song after song. And those that wanted to just raised their hands and worshiped the Lord. And Gerald was there, and in the back was a young man who was just weeping. And Gerald went up to him and and began to talk to him, and he said that he asked Jesus in his heart in the service and got saved. And Pastor Gerald was encouraging that he's a new creation in Christ and he's forgiven and that it doesn't matter what he's done, it's okay. And he looked up and he said, are you Pastor Hagerman? And Gerald said, yeah. And then Gerald started to recognize who it was. And he said, you're the young man that broke in my house. And he said, yes, I am. And Gerald said, I forgive you. I love you. I love you in Jesus' name. And he went and got Marilee, who was probably more affected and, and hurt by, what, by losing her, her grandma's jewelry. And Marilee came and gave him a hug and said, I love you. I forgive you. You know, you see this story in the, in the media every once in a while. It's always one of the most moving stories when there's been a murder or something serious. And, and the person who's lost somebody can look at the, at, the, at the person and say, in Jesus' name, I forgive you. And I don't have bitterness towards you. It's always so powerful. But listen, God, God gives you and, and wants us to have that ability 
And he says, listen, another place in the Bible, he says, you can kill him with kindness anyways. It says, if you're kind to him and you forgive him, it's like heaping hot coals upon him. And it works way better. And you're healthy. You're healthy. And your family's healthy. And you're not mad and, and, and bitter with people around you and affecting your own life. Bitterness is drinking poison and waiting for the other person that you're mad at to die. If you drink poison, who dies? You do. So, so again, this, this warning against bitterness. And one, just one little more thing um, on bitterness. You know, if, if your bitterness is manifested in the local church here, and, and you leave here today, and, and you, every Sunday after church, you serve roast preacher to your, to your family at lunch, or roast church, or you roast whatever, you know, that you're bitter at, then, then your kids are going to become bitter at church and, and at God. And, you know, you're going to have adult children that won't want anything to do with church, and you're going to still be bitter and blame me, but the, the problem is really your bitterness. And I've seen it. I've seen it all the time. Lydia and I have experienced it and lived it firsthand just two weeks ago. A woman that we knew and loved who, who became bitter at Joshua Springs and Pastor Gerald and life and had said something like, oh, that Hagerman family, that's why my kids don't walk with the Lord today. Blamed Pastor Gerald and his family and some of their sins and rottenness. And guess what? They're not perfect people and probably had some sins and some rottenness along the way, but she's still responsible to God. There's no excuse. Maybe her kids don't walk with the Lord, not because of the Hagerman family, but because of her bitterness and that she instilled in them for years a bitterness towards God in the ministry. And every day she served roast preacher and roast church and roast Bible and roast God to her kids. And it's dangerous. You know, even even in the area of sports, Lydia and I took this, you know, we've been a sports family. My kids have played organized sports since they've been three years old. But if you, if you every day after the game, on the ride home, you tell your kids how crappy and terrible their coach was, and you have roast coach for, for the ride home every day, even if the coach is crappy. We, Lydia and I would wait till the kids left, and then we'd talk about how bad the coach was. <laughs> yeah, I did. How was the coach? Um, but, again, then, then you send your kids back into that situation, and all they've heard is how stupid the coach is. He doesn't know what he's doing, and, and they have to play for him, and they have, to, they have to function in that system, and you've just made them bitter. You've just destroyed them for that, for, for that, that event and that, 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 that whatever. And so, you, you know, you don't want to create and be, have that, again, that bitterness. Lord says get rid of it. He says deal with it. Um, and then you just... You know, it causes division. When that bitterness causes division, it's something that God says he hates. I never want to be on the side of something that God hates. And then in verse 18, let's try to finish in the last few minutes. Verse 18 says, for you have not come to the... No, 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 I'm sorry, I can't skip it. I know I was going to just... But I can't because it's got Esau in it. We've got to talk about Esau real quick. Listen, verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, For you know that afterward, when Esau wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, even though he sought it diligently with tears. So I don't know if you guys know the story of Esau and Jacob. Esau and Jacob were two, um, they were twin brothers who were warring in the womb of their brother, uh, their mother, Rebekah. When they came out of the womb, they were fighting in the womb for the, for the right to be born first. Because in Israel, you would get the blessing of the firstborn. A double portion of inheritance. And, and so Esau wins the fight in the womb. And Esau comes out and he's covered in hair. And his dad looks at him and goes, Harry. And that's his name, Harry. That's what Esau means in Hebrew, Harry, literally. 
And, and, and Jacob is holding on to his heel because he lost the fight as they come out of the womb. And his dad looks at Jacob and he says, heel catcher. And that's his name, Harry and heel catcher. Well, when Harry and heel catcher grow up, um, heel catcher is, is kind of a mama's boy. He's, he likes to be in the kitchen and he cooks and he, he wears skinny jeans and watches Martha Stewart and bakes cookies. And Harry, Harry is a man's man. He's a hunter and a gatherer and a fisher and he's out in the wilderness and he's not really into spiritual things. And, and so Esau is out hunting and hiking and he, he, he killed a, a, an elk on a, on a ravine and he had to pack it out for miles and he was tired and he gets home and heel catcher Jacob is, is a watching Martha Stewart and copying her lentil soup recipe. And, and the soup smells good, and Esau's come back from this long hunt and hike, and he's tired and hungry. Esau says to Jacob, let me have some of your lentil soup. And Jacob says, sell me your birthright, and I'll give it to you. And he said, man, I'm starving to death here. What do I care about that birthright? It says that Esau was a profane man. Did you read that? We just read that in verse 16. Listen, the term profane is not like you and I might think of profane. Somebody who's cussing all the time and telling foul jokes and, you know, that, that guy in your, in your job site that's just profane and foul. That's not what the word profane means here. The word profane means that he was not spiritual. He wasn't concerned with things of God. He was just not concerned with, with relationship and, and what happened between him and the Lord. He just didn't care about spiritual things. Maybe some of you can relate. Maybe some of us, myself included, right, in times and places of life, we could care less about spiritual things. We were focused on our life and, and what we were doing and had really no consideration of what God thought about a whole ordeal. And Esau's just in that place of life. He's profane. He's not interested in spiritual things or God or going to church or growing in Jesus. And he says, sure, I'll give you my birthright. You can have it. It doesn't mean anything to me. He was, he was, he was profane or living ungodly in the time. And then when he realized that there was monetary value later in life, it really came down to the brass tacks where he really had to experience what it was like to give Jacob that birthright. And, and when the blessing came down for the firstborn son in Israel, it was a double portion, literally of, of monetary possessions and of things. And when Esau saw that he wasn't going to get the blessing, he, it says that he got upset and he began to weep and he began to seek the Lord with tears. And it says God didn't honor him. God didn't honor his tears. And you think, oh, well, what happened? Why, why was God harsh or why was God angry at Esau? You would think that if I come to the Lord and I'm broken and I'm in tears that God would, would forgive me. God would honor me. Why would God not honor Esau? Because Esau, even though it says here, what's teaching is that even though Esau sought it with tears, he was, he was crying because he couldn't afford the Porsche. Because he wasn't going to get a double inheritance, and he was crying because he got caught, not because his heart was broken that, that, that he had broke the heart of God. He, wasn't, he didn't experience true repentance. The prisons are full of people who are sorry. Sorry they got caught, but given the chance, they'd go do the same thing over and over again. That's not what God's interested in. God is interested in a true repentance, a heart that's broken. And so when it's a broken and contrite heart, the Bible says that God's interested in. And God wants you to be broken before him. And even though Esau was crying, he wasn't crying because he was broken before the Lord in repentance. He was crying because he couldn't get the double inheritance. And so God didn't honor it. And then it says, um, all right, I really got to wrap up. So 
Verse 18 says, And you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness that darkened tempest. Let's have the worship team come on up. They're going to close us in a song as I, as I finish out this last two minutes. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall, not be, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. That's a reference to the Lord bringing the, the law of Moses to Mount Sinai. Verse 21. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. So he's, con- he's contrasting the Old Testament way God gave the law and the New Testament covenant. And in verse 22, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to a city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than of Abel. And again, the term better, that Jesus is better. So, so the law was given this on Mount Sinai. And God said to get every animal, every person far away from Mount Sinai when he showed up, lest, lest his presence would absolutely kill and annihilate anything that was close. And the people came and God gave them an invitation to stand back that only Moses would go up to the top. And the people and God said, you can watch, but don't get close. And if you get on the mountain, if there's a goat, a rabbit, anything on Mount Sinai, when I show up, it's going to die. And so the people came to this first invitation and God showed up on the top of Mount Sinai with a thundering and a trembling and a running and the people became very afraid. And then after that, they wouldn't get anywhere near. They backed up so far and they said to Moses, hey man, that was scary. God, we, you just go, we're cool. Just go and, and, and get up on the mountain with God and come down and tell us what God says. We're cool. We're not going to get anywhere near it. And, and so Paul says that, that this was the experience of God showing up to Moses. Now Jesus comes in a new temple. And Jesus comes and invites you to enter now the Holy of Holies that, that people were afraid of. And that, that Jesus and this relationship that God offers to you is better. And then he says that in verse 23, he says, The judge of all the spirits of just men made, and verse and again, general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. In Revelation 20, verse 20. Verse 15, there's a sobering reminder. And Paul says, I'm speaking to those whose names are registered in heaven. In Revelation, it says, and anyone not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's a book in heaven called the Lamb's book of life. And Revelation says, anybody's name who's not registered in the book, they they were thrown into a lake of fire. And Paul here in in Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that for those that are registered, and I have a question for you. Is your name registered in heaven? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Now, if if your answer to that question today is, I hope so, then it's probably not so. And you probably should get right. And it's just simply to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. To, to ex- receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to make sure that you know that you know that you know that you know that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. My name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. I have no doubt about it. I'm registered in heaven. I know that I know that I know. 
And only by the grace and the mercy of God can I know that and have that assurance of salvation. Only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ am I assured that my sins are forgiven and that that my name is in the Lamb's book of life. And we want to make sure that our names are registered in heaven in the Lamb's book of life. Because the last thing and the scariest thing in all of human history, in all of eternity, is when Jesus says to folks, depart from me, I never knew you. And so the only, only criteria that I can find biblically for going to heaven is not what we do, what he did, but it's knowing Jesus, that he knows you, and that he's written your name in the Lamb's book of life. Let's stand. I want to invite you to make sure you know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You know, I want to lead you in a prayer. You know, sometimes, and rightfully so, the church takes some criticism for what I'm about to do. Oh, you just say a prayer, and you just ask Jesus in your heart, and then you go to heaven. You're giving people a sense of, of salvation. That the Bible says there's a cost of discipleship, and in order to go to heaven, you've got to be a Christ follower, and you've got to do and do and do. You know what? There, there, there is a genuine cost of discipleship. But if we don't start here, we'll never get to there. This is a starting point. This is a place where you can place your faith in Jesus and say, yes, I want to be a Christ follower. I want to begin the journey of becoming a disciple. If you're not a Christ follower today, you can't become a disciple today. You can become a Christ follower and then begin your discipleship process, but it has to start somewhere. You know, I never want to play a bait and switch, you know. Our church is a, is a battleship, not a cruise ship, which means that every one of us in this church, we have a station, we have a battle station, we have a job to do for the kingdom of God. And so being a part of that, being a part of that battleship, being a part of that station. But if you want to make sure today that you know, and only, only through biblical Christianity is there an offer of the assurance of salvation. Every other religious system in the world, you research it, and, and, and I, I just trust me it's true, but you check it for yourself. There's no assurance of salvation because there's some kind of work, something you have to do to go to heaven. Jesus said you can't do anything but believe and trust in me. And but listen, once you believe and trust in Jesus and you give him your life, you begin to want to do things. You begin to want to follow God. It's so cool. You begin to not want to do some of the things you used to do just because you're, you're falling in love with Jesus. And it's all through relationship. And, and, and works is born relationship. Amen? Okay, first things first. Making sure your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. The Bible says that if you... Trust and believe on the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. If we were in an airplane and it was going down, I could lead you to heaven in salvation with a simple, simple verse. Trust on the Lord Jesus and you shall trust and believe on the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. Paul said, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. So I want to give you an opportunity today to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. So if, if you all close your eyes and bow your heads and if everybody would just pray out loud with me. If there's anybody in here today who's praying this prayer for the first time, God hears you, God knows. And if you need to surrender, if you need to rededicate your life to God, then, then we want to give you that opportunity. And also as, the, as we sing this last song, I think it's important. I know we're always a few minutes over, seems like every Sunday. But if you can stay for this last song, I encourage you to, to use it to worship the Lord. If you need to run out as soon as, as, soon as I say amen, you're welcome to go. But, but I encourage you to, to, to really press into God through this last song. And, and then also as this last song plays, um, some of the pastors and leaders are going to be up front. And we invite you to come up front if you'd like individual prayer. And, and, and so um, let's pray together. If you, if, again, if you want to pray together with me. Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior.
I realize I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Thank you for dying on the cross and rising again the third day. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I give you my life. I put my faith and my trust in you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, God bless you guys. We love you guys. Hey, if you prayed that prayer today, we want to give you a Bible and just encourage you and get you pointed in the right direction. Please come up and let one of the guys know. Um, And again, let's worship the Lord together. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.